Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good looking crowd. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm not the usual face. Um, many of you are wondering um, where Brad has been. Brad is in India right now, and he is going to get back sometime this week. Uh, He and I have been texting back and forth about different things. Among them, probably the most important thing being that he is traveling with a British man. Uh, One of his co-speakers at this conference he's at uh, is from Britain. And uh, so I just want to go ahead and prepare you. I think we should all be ready for when Brad comes back. Two things uh, will probably take place. One, he will speak with a partial Indian accent. I'm ready for it. I I think we should all brace for it. But I know that he will come back using British terms and slang. I guarantee that it's going to happen. So I think we all need to spend the rest of this week preparing for that. I think it would do you well to watch Downton Abbey or something just to prepare yourself for the the dialect that he's going to be coming at us with uh, next Sunday when he preaches again, all right? So uh, I think the trip is going really well, though, and I think Brad's seen a lot of fruit and a lot of encouragement visiting with our friends there in India. So uh, do keep praying for him and for a safe trip home. Um, today, after, the, uh, after I'm done preaching, um, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, and, and so I want you to, to know that so that you're not freaking out at the end, like, whoa, we're doing what? Um, no, I want you to be thinking about that, especially as we go through this text this morning in particular. Um, but, but later on, after the sermon, the Ushers will come forward, they'll gather the bread and the juice for us to come get um, in a minute. Um, And and I just want you to know that um, if you're a believer, if you are uh, a member of the church, certainly, but even if you're a member of another church, but you you know Jesus, you love Christ, you are welcome to, and we encourage you to participate in the Lord's table together with all of us. If you're not a believer, um, and and maybe hopefully as we work through this text together, that might change. Um, if you're not a believer, uh, don't feel the pressure to get up and do what everyone else might be doing, right? Uh, it, it wouldn't make sense to, to participate in the Lord's Supper without, uh, without really actually believing what the Lord's Supper declares, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, that, that he has died for our sins and come back to life to give us new life. Um, that's what we mean when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what we're saying, um, And we'll talk about that this morning. Our text this morning is in John chapter 11. We'll be in verses 1 through 46. So it is quite a haul. Uh, I'm going to work through it piecemeal. And then uh, at the end of it, um, draw a few conclusions. Um, But I'll have some comments along the way too. So we won't just be reading straight through 46 verses uh, as we go. If you're looking for it in one of the Bibles in in the chairs in front of you. Um, You can find it on page 897 in one of them. I think the other one might have it on page 703. Um, But uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, um, consider that our gift to you. Please take that, read it, um, use it, devour it. Um, This this story today, and I say story, and you know when I say story, I don't mean a fiction story, right? I know some people get hung up on that. I I mean this narrative, this, this account that John records here in John 11. Uh, this is one that I hope is familiar to a lot of you, or at least you're familiar with the, um, the general idea, which is that Lazarus is raised from the dead. Spoiler alert. I'm so sorry. Um, he's going to die, and Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. All right, now we've covered that. We've established that fact. We can move forward. Um, I chose this text, though, for two reasons. And the first reason is, um, well, this is a powerful story of the power and authority of Jesus over sin, death, and hell. It's just, I think we, we need this reminder. I mean, we need it all the time. But, but I think um, just for right now, I, this is something that I really want to impress upon us. It's something I've needed impressed upon my heart, which is that Jesus has authority over death. The second thing, the second um, feature of this story that I want us to focus on uh, is it has to do with the, the love of Jesus that we see demonstrated here. Um, this is a story about death, but a very real death, the death of a person, a person that Jesus knew and loved, a person uh, related to others that were Jesus' closest friends. And as we see the way that Jesus interacts with Lazarus' sisters in particular, Mary and Martha, 
Um, I, I just, I found so much encouragement for, for me personally to watch how Jesus comforts his people, uh, especially when they are facing uh, sin, death, and hell. When they are facing suffering and the results of the fall, uh, what, what is Jesus' reaction? And so this story, it weaves together two threads, one of Jesus' power to defeat sin and death, and the other of Jesus' love. Uh, to help us in our time of need. So let me, let me pray for us before we dig into the text, and then we'll, uh, we'll get right to it. Let's pray. Father, I'm, um, I'm just grateful for reminders of, of Christ's power and, and of his, his love and compassion for his people. Uh, we, can't, we can't have one without the other. Uh, we, need, we need both so desperately. Uh, our world is broken. Our lives have uh, their own scars that, that we know of, some that other people might be aware of, but then there are some that, that only we know. Um, but what we know that above and beyond all of that, Jesus is aware. Um, and not only is he aware, but, but he is powerful and mighty uh, to, to be with us and to save us from even our greatest foe. Uh, which is death itself. So we, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we get into the text. I pray that eyes would be open, that ears would be attentive to the, the things that you have to say through your word. Um, I pray that would be true for all the people in this building, not just in the sanctuary, but for those in children's ministry. I, I pray that you would give them a clearer understanding of who Jesus is, of what he's done. Be with our workers, help them to to care for our children well. Pray that you would even um, draw some to faith. And in our kids' men halls and, and in this sanctuary as well. And be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this, um, this story comes with a, a bit of a context. I want to give it to you. The context is that of death. So this is going to be a real exciting, uh, exciting story uh, for today. Um, but the context is, is death. We, we don't really like to think about death very much, maybe. Uh, it's just not, it's not really a, an ever-present reality, I think, for a lot of us. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, we've, we've experienced death in, in our lives in, over the last few years, or, or maybe even, I know for some of you, very recently. Um, but, but outside of uh, funerals, how, how often do we, do we really ponder death? And not only that, how often do we ponder the eminence of, of death that, that we ourselves face, right? Um, barring the return of Christ, we will all die. That's a, that's a sobering, sobering truth. It's the result of the fall, if, if you remember. If you, if you turn back to Genesis um, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, uh, the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree, of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we know the rest, right? Adam and Eve, they, they, they eat of the tree, they partake of it, they disobey the Lord, they question his intentions and his commands, and the result is death, though it's not immediate. They don't die right away. Instead, their lives are dragged out uh, and misery, and labor, and toil, and destruction, and sin, until then they die. Um, it's kind of miserable. Um, but, but Hebrews 2.15, uh, it, it, it reminds us that death is something that, that all of us fear. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews refers to uh, us as those who, through fear of death, were, and some of us may still be, subject to lifelong slavery. Right, death hangs over us like a cloud. And lastly, 1 Corinthians 15, 26 is, is clear on this point, uh, where Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And if you read Revelation, you, you get this, this picture of Jesus destroying death itself. Uh, but, but until that day, until that point... Something we, we all face. And it's not just our, our own deaths and the things that lead to death. It's, it's the deaths of other people and, 
and the, the, the results of the fall that we see in this world, in our own hearts, right? So, so this, this story, it, it doesn't just apply to physical, literal death, but it, it applies, I think, to all the ways that the fall has marred God's creation. And the suffering that we experience, the trials that we experience in this life, the difficult, painful circumstances that we go through are all a result of, in some way or other, the fall. Whether through our sin or the sins of others against us, um, this, is, this is our world, this is our context, this is the reality that we face. And so, in, in John 11 we get the story of a man's death. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Gospel of John, the, the apostle works his way through seven, seven signs that Jesus does, seven miraculous things that Jesus does that, that show something about him, especially his divinity. And, and this sign, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is the seventh and final sign that John gives the rest of the gospel has to do with Christ's time in Jerusalem, his, cruci- his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, all of that. But up until this point, it's all been working toward this final sign, the death of Lazarus. And yet, because of where John is going, we, we know that looming in the background, overshadowing everything we read about here, is another death. And it's a death that doesn't occur in this narrative. It's a death that will occur as the gospel unfolds. And that is the death of Christ. So as we read John 11, we need to be mindful not only of of Lazarus' death. We need to be mindful of the death of Jesus. And what it has to do with Lazarus' death. They're connected. They're, They're deeply intertwined. And unless we see that, we'll, we'll just see this as some amazing tale of, of a person being resuscitated, uh, when what we need is so much more than that. All right, let's work through it. Start with uh, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Uh, Bethany, if you don't know, is a, is a no one knows, I didn't know this. Bethany is a village like two miles away from Jerusalem, uh, and, and that's a big deal because John chapter 10 unfolds Jesus' last jaunt to Jerusalem. Um, it didn't end well. Uh, in fact, the, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus then and there, if you want an idea. And so Jesus left Jerusalem, and, and, and so now, all right, so, so Bethany, just keep in mind the geography here, Bethany is, is close close by there. This was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Uh, This is not the lady from our text last week. This is uh, actually, surprisingly, a different different story. And, And John 12 records how Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with ointment and, yeah, her hair, just like the lady last week. Uh, this is like a trend. Um, she, she does this, and, and it's made very clear that this is a preparation for Jesus' own burial. Um, so again, we see Jesus' death hanging here. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters, it's Mary and Martha, sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's let's pause here. This is a really remarkable little exchange, right? Mary and Martha, they they send word to Jesus. He whom you love is ill. Uh, What an incredible way to be known. Jesus needs no further context. Oh, Lazarus, yeah. He whom you love is ill. This isn't the point of the text. It's not the point of my sermon. Actually, it kind of is. Um, if you are in Christ, this is, this is how you could be referred to. 
hopefully not as ill, but as he whom Jesus loves. Right? This is, this is our story, is what I'm saying. He whom you love is ill. And you notice, too, they don't, they don't request anything of him. They're, they're, it's, not even, it's not even a question. They're not asking Jesus to do anything. They're not telling him to do anything. They're just simply putting it out there. Lazarus is ill. And this isn't just a cold, right? They're not just taking their time to write a handwritten letter that's going to take days to get to Jesus by a messenger on foot and say, hey, Lazarus has like, he's got the sniffles. And they're not doing that. You know this is serious. Jesus knows this is more than just a cold, okay? But Mary and Martha, they're, they're so unassuming in the way that they approach him. They just let him know. Uh, maybe they were aware that coming to Bethany so close to Jerusalem would not be in Jesus' best interest. We don't know. Uh, but, but the point is, they send for him. They, they go to him. He's the only person they, they really know to, to go to about this. And what I love is, is how this sets up the rest of the narrative. Verses 3 and 4. Just, just lay it all out for us. He whom you love is ill, and, and what does Jesus say? Uh, he says, well, this illness won't lead to death. Um, and he says, in fact, it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It, it really sets our expectation for the rest of this story. Because at, at first glance, it seems like maybe this isn't as big a deal as, as we might expect. But not only that, it, it calls to mind, it makes us question, what does it mean what does it look like for Jesus to truly love Lazarus? What is that? Where does that take us? He whom you love is ill. All right, Jesus, show us how you love he whom you love in his illness. What will he do? What, what does the love of Jesus look like? We already have an idea just within this, this section that, that Jesus is certainly concerned about one thing. And, and it's not Lazarus' death alone or his illness alone. Jesus is concerned primarily with the glory of God. And we'll circle back around to that, but that is a, that is a theme that cuts through this story is that more than the, the illness of a mere man, Jesus is consumed and concerned about the glory of God and, and how God will be made known through this illness, through everything that's about to follow. That is Jesus' ultimate concern. Right, let's keep going. Verse 5, now, Lazarus, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. All right, so we get, we get a little reaffirmation there. He does love them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I'm sorry, what? what? Are you, wait, I, hold on. He loved them. So when he heard about what they were dealing with, he chose to stay Put for two days, he goes nowhere. And the text doesn't give us really any reason why. Jesus had no other business to attend to, nothing else happens. The only reason we're given for why Jesus does nothing is that he loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Does that, so this, we're already, right, this, I hope you're seeing how this challenges maybe uh, the way that we assume Jesus loves us best. Already we are assaulted by the notion that for Jesus to love us might not mean that he does the most efficient, expedient thing to rescue us from trouble. Sometimes it means that he, he intentionally, deliberately stays put. Why? Why? He's given us an idea in verse 4 that the glory of God is so crucial to him, but we need, we need more. We need to see what, what's taking place, what's going on that Jesus would stay. 
verse 7, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And Judea is where Jerusalem is. It's where Bethany is. So by saying this, Jesus is saying, all right, let's head back. Let's, all right, let's go visit Lazarus. But because John records it as Judea and not Bethany, John is wanting us to, to be thinking again about what it would mean for Jesus to go to Judea, to Jerusalem. Jesus' death is looming in the background of the, the, the situation Lazarus faces himself. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, hey man, we don't have a whole lot of time here. I got stuff to do. Bethany's that way. That's where we're going. We got 12 hours in a day. We got to do this. We have, we have work to be done. Um, for, for Jesus to walk in the day meant doing things that even hastened his own death. Because the, the will of the Lord, the glory of the Lord drove him more than the, the urgency of, of the people here, more than the urgency of the disciples, more than the, the urgent nature of Lazarus's situation. Jesus is driven by his desire to, to do the work of the Lord. And you see here as the disciples argue with Jesus about the merits of returning to Jerusalem, you see them betray their own anxiety, their own fear, which is that Jesus might die. Let's keep going. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. He'll, he'll wake up. But Jesus had spoken of his death, for they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thanks, Thomas. So, <laughs> it's a pretty uh, gloomy outlook. But he's being real. This is where the disciples are at. They know what awaits them, what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. If we return to Judea, you could die. There's nothing they fear more than the death of Jesus. And it's understandable, but as we'll see, it's unavoidable. His death is, is critical to this whole thing, and though it seems like an interruption in the story, right? We were just talking about Lazarus, and now the disciples are worried about Jesus' death. No, it's all, it's all woven together. So Jesus compares death to, to sleep. You, did you catch that? He says that Lazarus is asleep. We need to go wake him up. That's a common metaphor and, and throughout the Bible. You, you see this, right? You know, in the Old Testament, kings sleep with their forefathers and so on. You know it's not that they're actually snoozing for hundreds of years. They're dead. Um, just a way to refer to it. But in this case, it, it's, uh, it's really a perfect metaphor, especially for what, for what happens next. And so... Um, Lazarus is dead, and, and it seems like Jesus is, uh, well, he's just relatively undisturbed by it. He refers to it as sleep and considers it a matter of just going to wake him up. But not only that, um, he, he tells the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, um, or he says Lazarus in verse 14 has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. If, if, if you're reading it in, in Greek, it's even more blunt the order of the words is literally, Lazarus has died, and I rejoice for your sake. I mean, can, you, can you imagine if Mary and Martha were there to hear him say those words? How devastating that would have been. And even as we hear that, we think, whoa, whoa. That's, does, he, does he know? Does he understand what's going on? Does he get it? 
Thomas and the disciples, they're, they're concerned that Jesus might not get it. Not about Lazarus only, but about himself. And, and so it raises for us a question, will Jesus die? And we know that he will, but, but in this narrative, it's yet to be seen. If this is it, if this is the end, and, and so clearly, as Jesus goes back towards Judea, and as he goes back to visit his friends, Mary and Martha, to see Lazarus, we, 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 are, we are uniting the death of Jesus, the, the possibility, with, with the, the real death that has already taken place of Lazarus. And that's where we get to probably the, the, the most critical part of this narrative. It's not where Lazarus is resurrected. It's, it's really probably right here where Jesus explains to Martha the most important thing for her to know. So verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. All right, if you are curious, people who are dead for four days are dead. They are dead. They are gone. There is not a thought in their brain. They are toast. Lazarus is gone. He has been buried. And, and as Martha and Mary go on to explain, and as John emphasizes, there, there's no question that Lazarus is beyond hope. He is beyond hope. Bethany was near Jerusalem. Ah, there's that reminder. About two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. There's, there's not a moral judgment there. John's just telling us a fact. Martha went out to say, hey, Mary said, I got to sit for a minute. And, and, and so Martha visits with Jesus, and she says to him, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, this is an amazing exchange that takes place here. Martha is, is grieving, mourning the loss of her brother. Remember, she, she sent word to Jesus. She let him know that, that Lazarus was on the edge of death. He's ill. She didn't demand anything from him. She didn't ask him to do anything out of the ordinary. She just, she just thought by letting him know, it's better than, than doing nothing. And when Jesus shows up, and he is not just at the last minute, the 11th hour. No, he is four Days late. I mean, put yourself in her shoes. How would you respond? How would you react? Mary's response, her conversation with Jesus reveals an incredible amount of faith. An incredible amount of faith. And not only an incredible amount of faith, but some really good theology. She knows what's going on, she knows what's at stake. She knows who Jesus is and what he could have done. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother, he might not have died. She knows that he can do, he can even prevent death. She knows it. And when Jesus responds, yeah, well, you know, your brother's actually going to come back from the dead. She's right again. She says, yeah, no, I know the resurrection, the, the end of all things, when, when the resurrection takes place and the Lord raises up all that are his. I know that day is coming. Thank you for that reminder. Her theology is right, but she doesn't take it far enough. 
She doesn't, she doesn't know the depth of what she thinks she knows. Because as Jesus points out, the resurrection is not just some far-off, distant event that we just wait to happen. The resurrection is a, is a person that you can know here and now. She thought she understood what the resurrection was about, but she didn't realize as she was talking about the resurrection that she was actually talking to the resurrection. The one who holds the keys to death and hell. He stood there and he spoke to her in her moment of greatest sorrow over the death of someone she loved. He stood there. And, 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 and she just doesn't quite understand it. By the end, she says, I, yeah, I believe that you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the, the anointed one who has been sent by God. You are the Son of God. I know that your kingdom is coming. I know that there are so many things you have yet to do. And she's right. But not right enough. I mean, it's, it's worth pausing here to, to answer the question that Jesus asks Martha yourself. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection? Not that he brings it about only, but that he actually is the resurrection. Do you believe that? Um, he is the resurrection life that all people, including Lazarus, Need. And this is the point of, of the whole text. This is what the whole narrative hinges on, is, is this truth, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is the point. We, we are like Lazarus. You're breathing air right now, but you are dead in sin if you are not in Christ. You are dead. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Lazarus is buried. He is wrapped in linen cloths as we speak. There is no way he's getting up. And we too are, are in a similar spiritual condition apart from Christ. And this isn't only true for Lazarus. This isn't only a truth that Lazarus needs to know it's a, it's, and to experience. It's a truth that Martha needs to know as well. Even though she's not actually dead. Even though she's not facing her own death just yet. She is facing the effects of the fall of sin and death and hell just as much as Lazarus is. And she needs to know, not about some abstract idea of resurrection. She needs to know the power of Jesus. She needs to know him. She needs to believe in him, the resurrection. Jesus doesn't just offer something that, that he can't guarantee. He's not just pointing to something that God, his father, will one day do. He offers himself to her. He is the antidote to sin and death. He is the one who turns back the clock. He is the one who undoes the fall. He's the one. Do you believe? 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says that as by a man came death, that man being Adam, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ, right? Because he is the resurrection. Not just through him, but in him. When you face everything, any difficult circumstance, up to and including death, remember that you, if you are in Christ, know the resurrection himself. That, that is, that more than anything else is what we need when we face difficult circumstances. When we face suffering of many kinds, whether it is the death of someone we love or, or, or the, just the fruit of the fall in our lives. What, what we need is not get well wishes and, and good thoughts. 
What, what we need is, is resurrection. What, what we need is, we, who we need is Jesus. We need to see him for who he is. Not just the, the source of life, but life itself. Let's keep going. Verse 28, when she had said this, when, when Martha had said, yeah, I, no, I know, you're the Christ, you're, you're the Son of God. She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Right? Mary has stayed put. She didn't come when she heard Jesus was there. And it wasn't out of disrespect. Uh, as we'll see, Mary is deeply, deeply broken by the death of her brother. Not that, not that Martha isn't, but, but the way that Mary expresses this grief, uh, well, it's something I think we can all identify with at one point or another. She rose quickly. She went to meet Jesus. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Mary is at a total loss for words. You notice she says the same thing that Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother, he would not have died. She knows who Jesus is. She knows what he can do. And that's, that's as far as she can get. Because at that moment, she just can't do it. And she just collapses in a, just a puddle of tears. She's, she's so sorrowful and broken um, at her brother's death. And, and you remember what Jesus did for, for Martha when she came to him, though perhaps not in the same state. Jesus, he helped her to expand her doctrine a little bit, to get a bigger, clearer picture of who he is. But what does he do with Mary? You know? What's his reaction to Mary, collapsed at his feet, weeping? This is, um, this is one reason why this story has stood out to me so much uh, these last few weeks, months. Um, you know, as, my, as my wife and I have uh, just worked through... Um, the, the difficulty of, of kind of coming to terms with a child with, with very unexpected uh, medical needs, uh, extended time in the hospital, and, uh, you know, at, at probably the most in, uh, inconvenient time of year. Um, and we spent, we spent all of December virtually in, in Atlanta, you know, and, and not just away from home, away from, but, but concerned, confused, unsure uh, of what it was that our daughter was experiencing, what she was going through. She's only just now three months old. Um, you know, putting her in the operating room out of our care and out of our hands. You know, I, I, I get it, Mary. And, and our daughter is, praise God, she's alive and well. She's doing well. And thank you for all your prayers. I know that you have been praying for my family. Um, but, but when you face 
when you face the results of the fall, the brokenness of this world, and when that brokenness interferes with your life, sometimes that's all you can do is just weep at the feet of Jesus. And I think there's a temptation among believers, especially, to assume that weeping at the feet of Jesus is an inappropriate response to suffering. Which is why I love this story, because Jesus doesn't give a rip. And in fact, not only does he just say nothing, but he, he, he himself enters into Mary and Martha's grief, and he weeps with her. This is the Son of God we're talking about. The beginning and the end. Not only does he know what's about to take place in Lazarus' life, or death, as it were, he made Lazarus. Jesus is intimately acquainted with all the details going on right then and there. He knows but he weeps. If you were wondering, as you, as you comfort those who go through suffering and, and sorrow, if you were wondering if it's okay not to have anything to say, Jesus gives you permission. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that's, that's what people need. Uh, to know that, that the Lord is, is with them. Um, We'll talk, we'll talk more about this. There's no theologizing. There's, there's just empathy. And, and I think Christ's compassion is, a, is an example that we would all do really well to follow. When, when was the last time you wept with somebody going through something really difficult? That, that too is a sermon. That too can proclaim the gospel if you'll let it. Let's keep going. The people, they, they speculate in verses 36 and 37. They, they wonder out loud, you know, does Jesus, or they, they say, see how he loved him because of his, his weeping. Some of them said, well, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And, and, and implicit in that is, 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 is a question. It's, it's wondering out loud, is Jesus maybe apathetic? We've seen what he can do. Did he just choose not to, to do anything here? Or alternatively, is Jesus powerless? He helped a blind man see. Maybe death is too much for him. I don't know. But Jesus, he, he's going to answer those questions. As we get to verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, right? The dead man, Lazarus is dead, in case you had forgotten. There's an odor because he's really dead. She said to him, Lord, by this time there's an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Uh, even, even maybe more literal than that is uh, Jesus just says, Lazarus, out here. Come out. We're over here. The voice you're hearing, follow the light outside the tomb. Yeah, we're over here. He just calls him forth. And Lazarus, well, he gets up. The man who had died, if you've forgotten, came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen. He brings him forth from the dead. 
And, and then we see the results in verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There are two people two responses that happen here. One is the response of faith of people who believe and they praise God and they, they've never seen anything like it. And then the response of the skeptical who, I'm not so sure about this. I need to go let the Pharisees know about it. The Pharisees being the ones who just in the next paragraph begin to plot Jesus' death. Those are the only two responses you can have to this story too. You, you can believe or you can be skeptical. And I'm not just talking about believing whether or not Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, which he did. But believing whether or not Jesus can do that for you. If you will trust in him. Jesus can bring you back from the dead. Jesus can redeem the most difficult of circumstances. All the, the fruits of the fall... Jesus does have the power and authority to speak to and to overturn and overrule. This is proof. This is the evidence. All right, we got, we've got four points here. I want to run through them really quick. Quickly as I can. First point is this. The, the love of Jesus is deliberate and intentional when we, when we talk about this story, the, the first thing out of Mary and Martha's mouth is the one whom you love is ill. And then in verse 5, we, we find that Jesus really does love Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And, and then here at the very end in verses 36 and 37, the people affirm, look, see how he loved him? And yet there's still that lingering question, well, Maybe he actually didn't. Maybe he was kind of apathetic, or, or maybe he might have, but, you know, he's really powerless to have. No, the, the question that runs through this story is, what is the love of Jesus like? What does it mean in the case of Lazarus, in the case of Mary and of Martha? What does the love of Jesus look like? And we know that the love of Jesus is deliberate. He chose to stay in verse 6. He, he loved them, so he stayed. He did not go. Then he, chose, then he later chose to go. Only a few verses later, we get no real explanation other than this is just what Jesus has decided to do. And, and then he determines to awaken Lazarus. I'm going to wake him up. That's what I'm going to do. The disciples are flabbergasted. He's asleep. What do you mean? He'll wake up. And Jesus says, no, he's dead, right? But, but Jesus, knowing he's dead, confidently moves forward with his plan. I know he's dead. I'm going to go wake him up. What do you, what do you mean? This is the plan. He knew the risks of, of going to Jerusalem, of going back to Bethany. He knew that it could and, yes, will cost him his life. But he goes. He goes. Even his delay is done with purposeful love. You know, how, how quickly, I think, how quickly do we assume that if we just knew everything about our circumstances that we'd be better off, you know? If I just knew how this will all turn out, I could, I could endure it better. And, and yet John, he's not concerned with that. Mary and Martha, they have no clue what Jesus is up to. The point is that Jesus knows. He's aware of Lazarus. He knows what, what situation he faces, and he's moving deliberately. Jesus isn't twiddling his thumbs. He's not sitting on his phone checking Facebook. Oh, no, yeah, no, we'll move to Bethany in a minute. I just, I just got to... He's not, he's not waiting. He's got a plan. We see this throughout the Bible. Kwame read it for us this morning from Psalm 18.6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. When you think about the Exodus, my, one of my favorite passages in Exodus has to do with, it's at the very beginning in chapter 2, when the Israelites are groaning out to the Lord and Right there in Exodus 2, 23 and 25, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I just love that. I love that phrase. I love the truth behind that. The Lord is not unaware He's not deaf or blind. 
He sees. He sees what his people are going through. He, he knew what Lazarus and Mary and Martha were dealing with even then. Believer, your Savior does not twiddle his thumbs. Your Redeemer needs no motivation to act. He is always on the move doing the work of God in this world and in your life. Reminded of, and we see this here in John, the, the deliberation of Jesus to go to Jerusalem where he will die. And Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go there. He knows. He's not waiting. Point number two, the love of Jesus is compassionate. Um, and, and, and we've talked about this um, especially when Jesus wept, but, but throughout the whole narrative, we see the humanity of Jesus on display. As Isaiah says, he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. The song we sang earlier, he is the man of sorrows. And, and those aren't just his, they're, they're ours too, if we're in him. Of all people, you would think that Jesus would never weep, and yet we see that, that faith and sorrow can be compatible. Jesus knows how this is all going to turn out. But, but overwhelmed at the situation of his friends, angry at the fruit of the fall, at, at death itself, that it should even come to this, Jesus enters into our world as a man with emotion. And, and he experiences that emotion with us. He empathizes with us, full of faith, right? But diligently knowing what's at stake and what we face. Jesus at the fall, he knew the pain that would follow in the wake of sin. And he chose to enter into it. Point number three. The love of Jesus draws attention to the glory of God. Jesus was, throughout this story, he, he's never really concerned with the immediate solution or the rescue from pain. It's not to say he doesn't care about it, but, but it's to say that he's got something else in mind, and that is the glory of God. Because Jesus knows that it would be a pity for Lazarus or Mary or Martha to, to walk away from this with comfort for this life only. What they need is so much more than that. Because comfort is fleeting. Comfort can be dissolved with the next crisis. But, but Jesus knows that what we need, what Lazarus and Mary and Martha need, is, is a vision of the glory of God. This is what Romans 3.23 says, is that we've all, fallen, uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus, he, he's here to restore us to that. And so it's so pitiful then to, to think about being offered thoughts and well wishes, right, in, in a time of crisis. What, what we need is, is not good vibes. Um, what Lazarus needed was not an it'll be better pat on the back. He needed, he needed to know, and, and we need to know Almighty God. We need to see him for who he is. We need to see him and know him for, for, for who he is. And and so Christ's glory is the goal of Lazarus's illness and death. It's mentioned in verses 4 and 40. It says, I go that, that the glory of the Lord would be made known. That the glory of the Son would be put forward, even in Lazarus's illness and death. And, and likewise, Christ's glory is the goal of his own death and resurrection. Philippians 8, or 2, 8 through 11, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the midst of suffering and pain and even death, what the Lord wants most for us is not rescue from temporary trials, but a greater vision of who he is and what he's doing. This vision isn't just some long-term abstraction like Martha rightly understood. It's, it's a person. It's the immediate, eminent person of the Savior of Jesus 
Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And, and unless we see his glory as the resurrection and the life, we'll, we'll never be able to walk through this world with joy. It's too sorrowful. It's too painful. It's too up and down. We, we need to know who Jesus is. We need to see him for who he is as the resurrection. And finally, the love of Jesus compels us to repent and believe. Did you catch that all throughout the chapter, verses 14 and 15? Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. That's what he tells his disciples. Then he tells Martha in verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And finally, in verses 40 through 42, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Do you believe? No. It's the question that Jesus posed of Martha. It's the question he poses to all of us. Do you believe that he is the resurrection? Not just for everyone else, for you. Not just at the end of time, but here in the middle of it right now. Have you put your hope in him? Apart from him, there, there is no life. What you're experiencing now is, is just the, the shell of what life is in Christ. The life that Jesus brings us here and now through his own death and resurrection, this is what he calls us to, to believe. Are you facing sin, death, and hell? Maybe in your own life, maybe... You're walking through it with someone else. Entrust yourself to Christ's love and power. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin. And embrace the Savior. Embrace Jesus. He's our only hope. He is our resurrection. I want to pray. And when I'm done, the band will come on up and we'll sing. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, and the Lord's Supper is, is everything we've just talked about. The Lord's Supper reminds us of the death of Jesus. We, that is what we proclaim when we celebrate it. So if you're a believer, if you are trusting in Christ, please celebrate it. Participate with us in this. If you're not a believer... Stay put for a minute. I want you to think about these truths, about who Jesus is, about what he's done, and what he can do in, in your life if you will trust in him. If you want to talk about that, if you want to pray about that, I'll be down front. I know Will is, is over here. We'll be glad to, to speak. But, but more than that, there are believers throughout this room that you would do well to speak to. Uh, just to consider more who Jesus is and, and what it means to trust in him. Let's pray. Father, you have, uh, you've told us in your word that um, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You've said that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all creation can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. And we know this is no mere love, but this is a love that deliberately, compassionately, gloriously brings us life. not just as the, the result of Jesus' work, but as the overflow of who he is. He is the resurrection. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. Be with us now as we remember his death.
In, in Jesus' name, amen.